Okay. Um, full disclosure, uh, several years ago, there was a young man who uh, attended CTK through his seminary years, and he uh, went to um, grad school down in North Carolina, and, uh, and he reported back to John Standridge, uh, our associate pastor at the time, that he was happily ensconced in an Anglican church. And, uh, and he joked with John and said, you know, CTK in Cambridge really is the front porch of the Anglican church. And, uh, and, and in fact, um, there are at least three uh, former seminarians who, you know, with whom I did mentored ministry who are now ordained Anglican clergy. Uh, one of whom I even baptized as an infant, and his dad's a good friend and a deacon at, a, at the PCA church that I uh, left in North Carolina. And, uh, and while there are many things that I absolutely love about the Anglican church, you know, I'm not Anglican, and I thought, you know, it'd be good to, you know, kind of talk about uh, being Presbyterian. Um, but there's actually much larger issues than that. You know, being Presbyterian, uh, as you will see, I think is one of the smaller issues. Um, but there is a lot of confusion these days about uh, the nature of the church, you know, what the church is. And so, you know, um, my, when I think about broad categories, the first thing to think about is whether or not, you know, a given worshiping group is a church. And I, I don't mean to be picky about that. I mean, I wouldn't go around and point out and say, oh, those guys aren't really a church, you know, but, but you know, if, if you were to have some kind of rigor in your approach to, you know, what is the, what is the shape of the church, you know, then, then, you, then you might end up challenging some of those folks and say, what's going on? You know, what's going on here? So um, I don't think any of you guys, well, you're leaving, so th yeah. this, this directly applies to you. Um, and... Uh, so this is, why, this is why this class exists during this time of year, is that this is the time of year when people are leaving, they're going to new communities. And I thought, you know, kind of in a lighthearted way, you know, I'd offer, uh, you know, broad hints as to what Albert ought to be looking for uh, when he arrives in Fayetteville. Um, but, um, but more to the point, you know, kind of the larger concern is that, that at CTK, you know, we develop, you know, a well-informed, uh, energetic view of the church. And, 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 and you know, to be fair, uh, this is an answer to the fact that uh, most Protestants have a terrible understanding of the church, most American Protestants. And I would say that the PCA is, uh, is in that category, you know, mea culpa. Uh, uh, evangelicalism is, is renowned for the paucity of its ecclesiology, you know, to use uh, fancy words. Um, we don't really understand the nature of the church, and, and we are being swept up, you know, in a, in a way of thinking that I think we ought to be careful about. You know, we ought to observe the fact that we are in a consumerist society, you know, and part of that consumerism is good, you know, part of the freedom uh, to be able to choose your congregation as you uh, arrive in a town is a good thing. And, uh, but, you know, there are ways in which, you know, that consumerist impulse can really, um, hamper the work of the church. You know, it can really hamper uh, what God is going is doing in your life uh, as a result of the church. Um, so it ought to be a church, need to know what a church uh, actually is, broad category, you know, how does theology 
theological, how do theological distinctives uh, figure into the selection of a church? Uh, what about aesthetics? You know, that's a, a huge category now. You know, or is that a legitimate category or is it an illegitimate category? Uh, should aesthetics not matter at all? Um, what about the mission of the church? Uh, what about the location of the church? You know, what other categories, you know, might weigh in? And, you know, we'll kind of open this up for discussion uh, later on. Um, but how do you rank these various components? How, how do you think through, again, you know, what it is you're looking for, you know, when you look for a church? And, um, you know, and I, and I also want to say that, you know, I'm in this weird position, um, and, I, and I try to take it into account that, you know, I'm one of the only, one of the few people around here that gets to go to a church um, that I have designed, you know, and you guys will never get that. You'll, you know, you, you'll have to go to a church that someone else has, you know, thought through the critical issues and put, in, put them into play. And, and you have to decide, you know, in the balance of all the, all the various competing factors, you know, how you're going to decide, you know, um, uh, how to be a part of the church. So, uh, first thing is, what is a church? Now, this is kind of critical. This is uh, a long quote from uh, Os Guinness. If you know Os Guinness, he's, you know, a re renowned uh, cultural critic, you know, and he is uh, quick to criticize uh, evangelical Christianity. And uh, he does so as a friend. I mean, he, he would call himself evangelical. Uh, but he poses this question, um, is the church ours to reinvent or is it God's? So, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was this whole notion, you know, that got a lot of uh, attention because of the books that were written uh, by some guys who uh, were trying to reinvent the church. You know, so one of those famously would have been Rob Bell. Uh, out in Grand Rapids, Michigan. One of those famously would have been Brian McLaren. I think it was in Chambersburg, Maryland. And they wrote books, and the books garnered a lot of attention. In fact, I've got a you know, a little section on my bookshelf with probably about five or six of these books. And uh, they called themselves Emerging, you know, the Emerging Church. Uh, but they really were trying to reinvent the church. Um, it's, it's interesting now that, the, that those have kind of come to nothing. And, uh, or at least, the, you know, the, their import was vastly overstated. Uh, but here's Os Guinness, you know, reflecting on that. Is the church ours to reinvent or is it God's? Does the head of the church have anything to say or do the consultants have the last word? Shouldn't doing church follow from what we believe is the church's being? For all the lofty and recent statements about biblical authority, a great part of the evangelical community has made a historic shift. It has transferred authority from sola scriptura by scripture alone to sola cultura, by culture alone. And you remember Sola Scriptura was one of the five sola, soli of the Reformation. And, uh, and what it really meant was uh, that the scripture is the final authority. It's not the only authority, and we want to be quick to point that out. Uh, and, and, and the reformers never intended it to be the only authority and never intended a, a naked reading, naked private reading of scripture to you know, be the overarching principle under which the faith is understood. But it was simply to say that if there's any competition between what the Scripture teaches and what anyone else is teaching, you know, including the church, then the Scripture takes precedence. Uh, and so uh, Guinness is pointing out here um, that even though we profess sola scriptura, you know, there's a, lot of, there are a, there's a lot of evidence that we are more keen on what the culture is dictating than what uh, the Bible is dictating. 
So he says, uh, is the culture decisive and the audience sovereign for the Christian church? Not for one moment, God forbid. The client and the consumer may be king for free market enterprise. Serving the shareholder may be obligatory for the directory, directors of corporations. Uh, but the Church of Christ is not under any, not under the sway of market totalitarianism. I am awaiting the delivery of my glasses from home. <laughs> and uh, hopefully they'll arrive in time for the sermon. Um, even in America, where capitalism is king, pope, and emperor, all rolled into one. From the prophets, this is the word of God, to the reformers, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. The message, not the audience, is always sovereign. And the culture is always potentially the world over against Christ and his kingdom. Um, so what do you think of that? I want to be quick to say it's not that simple. Okay? Uh, it, it is a great principle, you know, uh, always to have as, you know, kind of a bedrock reality. But how we parse that out, you know, in, in the PCA, for instance, you, you will have folks saying, I'm standing on the word of God, and they are arguing for a particular uh, kind of worship setting uh, that not everybody agrees on. You know, not, not everybody agrees that the Word of God is absolutely firm and certain on that point. You know, so on the one hand, we want to say that we are rooted in what King Jesus is um, saying as he leads the church. Uh, and on the other hand, it's, it's not always completely easy to, de to determine what that is. Um, and yet, you know, and, then, and there's just always this question of, uh, of how much the culture is influencing. So I don't know if you saw this fascinating article. Um, I have somehow gotten linked up with this uh, website called Medium, I think is what it's called. Does anyone else know about this? So it, it, it's a pretty attractive, you know, kind of a, a reader's guide is really what it is. And for some reason, Redeemer, city to city, has chosen Medium to be the place where they post their stuff. And so if I want to read Redeemer stuff, I've got to log into Medium. And all the Redeemer stuff is free, you know, but I get this email every day saying, hey, here's some cool things you might want to read. And, and you know, and, and, uh, and I'm always lured to punch one of them. And then when I punch one, it says, okay, this is the first of your free ones. <laughs> and, and they're going to want five bucks a month from me sooner or later. Uh, but there was one that was really riveting um, a, a week or so ago, <clears throat> and the... It was a guy who was a journalist uh, who let you know, you know, very clearly uh, at the outset uh, was gay. And, uh, and he had decided or he had been commissioned to do a, um, uh, an article on Reality Church in L.A. Now, you, you may know that Reality Church also has a branch here. <clears throat> I know uh, Al, the pastor. In fact, I've even met the pastor of the L.A. church. He came through town and and wanted to chat about uh, multi-site uh, churches, and, you know, a lovely guy. And, in fact, I think Barzi has crossed paths with him uh, because they're both in this, uh, this, this cohort. It's not the cohort. What do they call it? For, for pastors and scholars. For pastor scholars. Uh, but anyway, um, it was a long-form article. You know, it was about this guy's experience, you know, and he, and he kind of backed up into his own personal experience that his parents had been pastors, uh, you know, what happened when he came out, you know, and, and how he eventually left the church, and here he is back at reality. And it's all very winsome. It's, you know, it's really kind of great. It speaks 
very favorably of the pastor, you know, of the Reality Church. But one of the things that caught my eye in an, overwise deli- in an otherwise delightful article was uh, this guy's experience on Easter Sunday and how uh, he was cognizant of the fact that the, uh, that the manipulative efforts of the church along the lines of the entertainment industry were on full display. Uh, and, and, and that people were being called to come up and be baptized. And the music was thick, the emotion was very powerful, and he felt himself drawn to it, but he also felt himself manipulated by it. You know, so, um, you know, you look at it at an instance like that, and, you know, say, is that, is that the culture, you know, kind of overwhelming the church at that point, or is that a legitimate use? You know, we certainly don't have lousy music, I mean, we pay attention to our music and we use it in a certain way, you know, but when does it become something that, you know, when does the balance tilt? And, I, and I'm, so all I'm saying, as we cite Guinness, as I cite Guinness, I think Guinness is absolutely right. But I, but I also want to say it's not quite that easy. So let's, let's think a little bit more carefully. Okay, so what is a church? I, I think a good reference point is the Nicene Creed. And, uh, and I, I tell this story, I've told it several times, if you've heard it before, I'm sorry, but... Um, I, I met this interesting guy, rich guy, uh, about my age, and he inherited a company uh, from his uh, parents, maybe grandparents, and his company makes the great majority of the oak barrels in which whiskey and wine uh, are seasoned around the world. They've got an operation in the United States and in Europe and in Australia. And uh, this guy's a jovial guy, you know, very interesting, got converted late in life, and uh and he's got a garage full of motorcycles. And somehow I got invited with my brother to go and join this motorcycle riding crew. And we rode up the coast of South Florida. And he promised to buy us dinner at a little shrimp shack on Jensen Beach. And, um, and there were some young men in the group. Uh, one was the son of and one was the son-in-law of uh, a pastor of a very large um, evangelical non-denominational church. Um, and, uh, and they said, oh, we've got some theological questions we'd like to ask you. They and another friend of theirs. And, over dinner. I said, that'd be fine. And so we sat down to have dinner, and they um, started asking me questions like, why did Jesus use mud, you know, when he healed the blind man's eyes? And I, I can't remember the other questions, but they were all like that. And, uh, and I said to these guys, I don't think those are theological questions. You know, I think those are almost kind of Bible trivia questions. Why did Jesus use what? Sorry, he said, uh, he said, uh, yes, why did Jesus use, use mud? On the blind man's eyes. Thank you, Wilson. And, um, and I said, you know, frankly, if you went into a theological library, got ten commentaries off the wall, you know, looked up this verse, you'd probably find five or six different interpretations, all of which would be tentative. And it seems to me that God doesn't really want the church to lock in on, you know, the precise meaning of, of mud at that point, that it just remains a little bit outside our understanding. I said, but, uh, but let me ask you a theological question. And they said, oh, yeah, great, great, we'd love it. You know, and they hunkered down. I said, what, what do you mean when you say you believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church? And it was interesting that they, 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 they kind of slumped back in their chairs. This, one, this wasn't the fight that they were wanting to have, you know. Uh, and one guy said, I've heard, the, I've heard the words before. I don't know where they come from. You know, and the other two guys said, I've never heard those words before. This is the Nicene Creed. And I, I don't want to be smug about this because, you know, I would say that I myself was relatively unfamiliar with the Nicene Creed except for it having been, you know, drummed into my head as a young Roman Catholic kid. 
you know, but I, but I don't think I ever reflected on it until I got to seminary and we started to go to work on some of the phraseology uh, uh, that's in the Nicene Creed and how important it is. There, there is a movement in the 21st century uh, in the evangelical church to start reflecting more energetically on the creeds, and that's a good movement. That's a great thing that we're starting to do. Um, but let's think about this. What does it mean that the church is one? Uh, <clears throat> I think I talked about this in the sermon last week. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind when we, when we call the church one is we begin to lament the fact that it is divided into many different denominations. And, um, and, and in fact, you know, uh, uh, folks who are not Protestant, you know, love to uh, poke fun at the fact that new denominations seem to crop up all the time. Uh, and and, and they, might, they might have a point. Um, but while denominations are lamentable, efforts at unification are flawed. You know, nobody's ever really figured out uh, how to affect the unification. Um, I think I have written down here somewhere that the ecumenical movement of the 1960s was, you know, uh, was a flop. Uh, you know, there was an intention to get everybody together, and they ended up rounding off the edges so severely that Christianity was undetectable. You know, it's an interesting thing if you ever uh, get to go into this Baptist church down in Central Square. Um, I don't even know if they're back open and running. Uh, I know that they're their boiler broke during the winter, but uh, I went in there one time and got a little tour, and uh, and the sanctuary, sad to say, has been uh, corrupted thoroughly, <laughs> uh, architecturally, and uh, and the woman who was giving me the tour is a lifelong member. She said that she was a child at that church, and she was 10 years older than I. Uh, she said, we, we redid the front of this thing and, you know, and took a, a beautiful... Um, uh, altar and stage and all that stuff and turn it into this massive uh, bulwark in order to accommodate 60 ministers at one time during the ecumenical movement in the 1960s. And, uh, and we haven't had the funds to take it back to a, what it used to be. You know, but this idea of all the ministers getting together and, and you know, let's, put, let's lay aside our distinctions, World Council of Churches, National Council of Churches, um, you know, re- really hasn't worked out. Um, but uh, non-denominational is, is popular these days. Uh, it's the modern word, really, for congregational. Um, and uh, most non-denominational churches will have connections. So reality, uh, for instance, here uh, has a connection to the reality church in L.A., and I think that there are four or five others. I know that the pastor was on his way to London to look at about planting one in London. So being connectional, I think, is very important. But uh, not being connected to any other church... You know, while theologically coherent, you know, uh, for some, um, uh, it seems to me to, you know, uh, establish a bit of a problem. Um, so modern ecumenism emphatically sacrificed theological integrity, preferring grace to truth. Uh, denominations can be helpful in providing homes for those committed in areas which God has not given clarity. So, you know, again, I wish God had given absolute clarity on, on the topic of infant baptism, uh, but he has not. And so if someone arrives at a firm conviction that they do not want their baby baptized, but want that reserved for uh, the moment the child comes to faith or the young adult comes to faith, uh, they're not going to be happy here. And, uh, and I can't convince them from the scriptures, and they're not alone. You know, so it's a good thing that there's a Baptist church down the road. And so in that way, denom- you know, the, two, the denominations are a blessing you know, that we get to... Um, 
you know, coexist and, and, uh, and uh, you know, unity is sustained in the preaching of the apostolic gospel. And I know that Curtis Cook, you know, at Hope Fellowship is preaching the same gospel I'm preaching, you know, in the main. Uh, so I would say that the unity of the church, um, when you think about cross-denominationally, ought to be defined by kindness and deference. You know, that we love each other, we care for each other, we respect each other. You know, that's a very important component. So, you know, the, the other, you know, area churches, <clears throat> you know, I, I want to be careful to be respectful. I want to be careful to pray for them. You know, I want to be careful not to make a public deal about our differences. You know, and I think that, the, you know, in that way, a broad unity of the church is preserved. Uh, holy is a category I probably need to do a little bit more work on. It means that we're set apart and different. You know, the church is holy not because it's good, but because it is Christ's. Uh, it is a, an institution that is set apart. Uh, you know, John Owen said, holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. Uh, so in this way, the church is holy. It is different from, it is set apart, it is sanctified, um, you know, by the Spirit of God. And, uh, and then, you know, what flows out of that are certain behavioral norms uh, where we keep the commandments of Jesus. Uh, Catholic is, is a good one to think about. And, uh, and, I, I'm, and this is what I've read a little bit about most recently, uh, and I'm a little bit energized by it. Uh, Ed Clowney in his book, The Church, which is back here on the shelf, says the church as a whole is more than the local church. Uh, this is closely connected to, the, to unity, but it's a different idea. Uh, this idea that the church is universal, uh, and that's around the world and through the centuries. There is one Catholic church. And, 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 and you know, we Protestants might object to the hubris, or we would call it hubris, of the Church of Rome calling itself Catholic you know, the Catholic Church, you know, we would beg to differ. And, and, you know, to be fair, you know, Rome thinks that it has addressed that at Vatican II and has said, yeah, you know, you Protestants can be Christians too. Um, now, they say it in a way that I'm not happy with, but, you know, if fair is fair. Uh, you know, they're acknowledging that. Um, but there is this sense that around the world and through the centuries, you know, there is a Catholic Church. Uh, Mike Horton you know, brings up, and I think that this is a, a good idea, and I, I don't really know what to do with it, but uh, he brings up the idea of ecclesial apartheid, and I think that that's a fascinating turn of a phrase. Um, the way in which churches tend to um, isolate themselves by ethnicity, uh, by age, uh, by musical tastes. Horton mentions that in his... Uh, part of the world, Southern California, the churches will, you know, um, isolate themselves by, you know, and announce that at nine o'clock is our 60s rock service, you know, and at 1030 is our Hawaiian service, you know, and at, at, uh, at noon is our jazz fusion service. And this idea that you, you, now this is consumerism, you know, probably, you know, challenging the integrity of the church. You know, when your, uh, Fellowship, when you're, you know, living, breathing, worshiping community is defined by musical taste. You know, this is, this is probably problematic. Uh, I think somewhat problematic is the way that we isolate ourselves ethnically as well. And, uh, and I know that that's a hornet's nest, and I am, uh, 
involved in it, you know, at a certain level, um, you know, trying to discuss the, the reasonableness of an ethnically distinct church. You know, I think, you know, certainly when there's a language barrier, uh, it's probably evangelistically viable, you know, to have something that's ethnically distinct. But if everybody's speaking English, you know, wh what do you do? Uh, and, and maybe even more to the point is kind of the age thing that happens. Um, I was with my son and my new granddaughter, I may say. She is uh, perfect in every way. And, uh, and I'm not worthy. Uh, but, you know, we were just sitting down chatting. Uh, he uh, lined us up, T and me, to go and spend the night uh, in an empty room uh, with church members around the corner from his house. And uh, so we went over there, and they were preparing to cook out and having a bunch of friends over. And it was all, you know, people my son's age. And, uh, and so I put to him, you know, how many people at your church? And this is a well-known church. This is uh, Grace Meridian Hill, if you, if you know. And the pastor is very well-spoken and, and highly regarded. And I said, how many, of the, how many people in the church would you guess are over 50? And he said, five. You know, out of a church of 200. Now, you know, I want to be fair about this. You know, when I was uh, 1982, you know, I got in on the ground floor of the planting of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And, uh, and we had visitor cards back then. You know, you, you could expect people to fill out name and address and phone number. And, and, uh, and then we had a little thing, you know, check off the box that applies to you. You know, I am under 20. I am in my 20s. I am in my 30s. Uh, I am over 40. And that's where it ended. And I remember a guy coming up to me who was probably, you know, 50 or 55 and said, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, so we were, you know, quite segregated at that point. But, you know, this is happening quite a bit. You know, this is almost the norm now. And, uh, and what's interesting to me is that even in our own community, you know, um, you know, we don't see as many 20-somethings as we used to. You know, there was one year when... Um, I did, I did a dozen weddings one summer. You know, the, the premarital counseling burden was such that I said, we're going to do a class, you know, instead of me meeting with you guys individually. Um, you know, now, on average, I do, you know, two or three weddings a year. How many do you do a year, Jeremy? Yeah, but you're, but you're, you're actually working with college students, so you, you would have, it, have that happen more. Um, so, um, yeah, so what's going on? You know, or, you know, we are aging up, you know, obviously, you know, a, a, um, a, a very energetic and, and resource uh, magnet in our church um, is our children's ministry, you know, and, and in fact, we are growing into a youth ministry. That's a new thing uh, for CTK. When I first got here uh, in 2000, um, I had teenagers and uh, the Stunces had teenagers. And, uh, and the Brazilians had teenagers. And then, you know, within four years, the Brazilians had teenagers, and we didn't have any teenagers. And, um, and since then, it's always been one or two. But now, you know, uh, within a couple of years, you know, we're gonna have a dozen teenagers in the church. That's an interesting kind of demographic thing. But if you're thinking about joining a church, and Catholicity, you know, uh, is important to you, it might be good to think about you know, is the church uh, isolated, you know, um, you know, by one category or another? And is there benefit in being a part of a church that has a larger group of people than the folks you would choose to call your close friends? Um, 
So, and, and Horton actually makes this point that's very interesting. He says, where word and sacrament are central, you know, he notices that multiculturalism flourishes. You know, when, when attention is focused on, the word, on word and sacrament, we'll get to that in a minute, uh, you know, the, a church can tend to become multicultural. And, um, you know, but, but if, it, if it doesn't, you know, if the emphasis is on, you know, the, the, uh, the targeted audience, you know, the demographic uh, uh, slot that you're trying to address, you know, you end up competing, you know, with others. And uh, they, they become competing Catholicities, which is a contradiction. Uh, and then apostolic, oh boy, the print's going to get small. Uh, this was critical for the reformers. They were accused of being schismatic. Uh, they understood that they were more consistent with the church through the ages than were the present Roman authorities. I've often said this, that, you know, if you think about the Reformation being, you know, a new thing, you know, something that, you know, where they, and, and this is what the emerging church guys were doing uh, back in, back uh, 15 years ago. They were saying, we're creating a new Reformation. And that's really a misunderstanding of the Reformation. The Reformation was not an attempt to create something new. The Reformation was, a, was an attempt to get back to the, the old. You know, one of the mottos was back to the sources. And, uh, and it's very interesting. You read Luther's commentaries, you read Calvin's Institutes, and you find all these footnotes. You know, footnotes referring to the Church Fathers, footnotes referring to what other people had said. And so the Reformers weren't trying to create something new. Um, they understood apostolic succession to be connected to apostolic preaching rather than to any human institution. The Reformation for them was Christ acting uh, to keep the gates of hell from prevailing against the church. So this is simply to say what I said last week in the sermon is the Bible, the New Testament in particular, is the true apostolic succession. And, uh, and we need to have a high view of that and, and have an understanding of that. Um, they focused on Holy Scriptures, the anchor of apostolic thought, uh, is the only final authority. True apostolic succession uh, is the Bible. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches both, and the and the reformers said either or scripture uh, or tradition as a final authority. As a final authority, you know, Protestants are uh, well um, connected to tradition. You know, they want to uphold the traditions. They want to. Uh, pay very close attention and say, to, you know, to the degree that God has brought teachers together, pastors and teachers, uh, that they are to be listened to, paid attention to. But when there's a conflict, the scripture um, um, uh, trumps tradition. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church was saying both and. But in fact, you know, at the points of uh, conflict, it, it is the church that outweighs the Bible. Um, Faith and work as a means by which one is justified. Again, you know, Protestants are certainly in favor of good works. You know, God prepared good works beforehand for us to do in Ephesians 2.10. Uh, but as the means of justification, the means by which we're accepted by God, the means by which God saves us, he saves us by his grace. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Um, uh, grace and merit. Um, well, that, I, I, I kind of overlap both of those. Is, by grace, you've been saved through faith. You know, faith is the conduit, you know, by which God uh, saves his people. But it is his grace that, uh, that initiates that, that sustains that, and that uh, concludes that. 
and, uh, and there is no merit in our good works. Uh, we are only doing our duty and doing that happily. Okay, that's one holy Catholic and apostolic. Any questions, any comments? Is this helpful or am I just kind of uh, beating my own private dead horse? Catherine? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great way to bring it up. Um, you know, the, the, the church growth movement, you know, which there, there was a definitive church growth movement that was centered at Fuller Seminary uh, back in the day. Um, you know, they said that you had to have a demographic isolation, you know, in place in order to reach, you know, a certain group of people. And so I remember a friend of mine going to plant a church in Littleton, Colorado, and, uh, and he uh, had as part of his fundraising material, you know, a demographic depiction of the person he was going after. Denver Dan uh, is what he called this person. And well, the person was a yuppie, you know, the person was uh, craft beers and Birkenstocks and Volvos, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, that, that's a demographic isolation. There are loads of people in Denver that don't fit that category. And he was systematically excluding. And in fact, what was interesting is a lot of folks rose up against the church planting movement or that church growth movement. And uh, you, can, you can dig it up. I think, uh, look at uh, HUPP, HUP, uh, the Homogenous Unit Principle. And, uh, and you'll see that there was a, uh, you know, a gathering of the minds, you know, and they, they reached a statement and uh, they, they produced a statement. And the statement said, well, this might help in getting a church started. It can't stay this way. You know, it's kind of, there were probably 10 points, but that was the main thing, that they were acknowledging the criticism and saying, yeah, this can go wrong. So I think what Keller does is he's not going in and saying, you know, that there is a people group, you know, as in yuppies or, or poor people or Asian people or, you know, um, Anglos. You know, he's saying, here's a city. You know, here's a city that's marked by cultural institutions, you know, by media outlets, you know, and what, is that, what do those things tell us about um, how to reach this city? And that seems to me to be different. It's not isolating a segment of the city, saying, what can we do for the whole city? Now, it is interesting that, you know, they, I think Redeemer, last I heard, was still over 50% Asian. You know, so that's very interesting, you know, when it started out with not, not any Asian leadership. Um, you know, I, I don't mean this to contradict, you know, what I said before, but it does seem to me that one of the places where you see word and sacrament on display to the effect of a natural and easy multiculturalism is in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, one of the things that's, that's kind of impressive about the Roman Catholic Church is they don't care what people think. They, they don't care what the congregation thinks. A friend of mine, uh, an interesting, kind of an acquaintance, I think I should say, but, you know, we got together and uh, caught up with each other several years ago. I bumped into him down at our South Shore congregation, and he said, you know, that just... Uh, 
in his life lately, he had started attending daily mass. And uh, the guy's energetically Protestant, but he thought this would just be a good way to start his day. And he went to this little daily mass in his neighborhood, and there were three people that showed up every week, you know, or every day, maybe two. And at one point, he, you know, thinking like a Protestant, he went to the priest and said, I just want to thank you for doing this. This is great that you're willing to serve. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, there just aren't that many people here, and yet you're here faithfully. And, and the priest kind of, you know, furrowed his brow and said, you know, I'm not, I'm not really here for you guys. I'm not doing this for you. And so there is an interesting thing that you can have a Hispanic community gravitate, you know, toward a, a Roman Catholic church irrespective of the ministries. Now, you know, now that I think about it, they, I mean, they can culturally isolate too. Uh, I've, made, I've made the point that up in my neighborhood, there were two huge Catholic churches when, I, when we first got here. One was Irish and one was French, you know, so there was cultural isolation going on there. Um, so nobody's perfect in it, but, I, you know, I think that Horton's principle is that, uh, you know, if you center on the things that God is telling you to center on, you know, people, certain people, hopefully more and more people would say, this is, this is the real deal, and this is what I ought to be a part of. Um, yeah, I remember that when Josephine showed up the first time, and uh, Josephine had surgery, by the way, on Friday, and I got a report that it went well, that she's uh, recuperating at home. Uh, but, you know, when I first met her, you know, I shook her hand, and I said, you know, why are you here? And I think it came out wrong. You know, I was trying to ask, how did you get here, you know? And she kind of raised up. She goes, I'm here because I'm Presbyterian. You know, like, why wouldn't I be here? This is the <laughs> But, you know, for Josephine, now in Ghana, there are more Presbyterians than there are in the United States. You know, so there really is kind of a great connection. And so when she gets to town, she looks up Presbyterian. Moved to Cambridge, looked up Presbyterian, and came here. We were one of three. But, you know, this is where she showed up. And, uh, and there's something to that. Again, I, I'm not big on denominational loyalty as an ultimate category, but, you know, there's something to, you know, that kind of um, move against um, the effect of consumerism. Is that fair? Okay. Um, okay, we're going to keep going. Uh, there are three marks of the church. This is where we kind of get into the, um, the category of word and sacrament, which was introduced, you know, in what Horton was saying, you know, that, uh, you know, what, how is a church a church, you know, what properly is being done in order to make a church a church, you know, rather than a gathering of believers, you know, that are, uh, you know, uh, being happy together. And so it was very interesting. When I was um, on InterVarsity staff um, back in uh, the early 80s, you know, uh, one of the things that we were very careful to do, and I think InterVarsity still does this, is we were careful never to distribute sacraments. And I remember being at, at uh, Windy Gap, uh, it's a camp down in North Carolina, and uh, it, was a, it was one of these big end of the year, you know, bring in next year's leaders and bring out the outgoing, bring, you know, it, massive, you know, it was probably five, 600 kids. And, uh, and we, staff were sitting around up in the cafeteria and someone came running up and said, uh, <laughs> you know, I think about a Christian camp, you know, if it were a normal camp, you, you, somebody come run up and tell you that there, there's a fire or some kind of mischief going on. No, this person was running up to tattle and say that the, the students from UVA were getting ready to baptize someone down at the pond. <laughs> and so we staff went running down there and said, no, 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 this is not going to happen. You know, you're not going to baptize somebody. You don't, you, you're not, we're not the church. 
you know, you, you don't, we don't have the authority to do that and neither do you. And um, anyway, um, so the great mark of the church is the message that it proclaims, the gospel of salvation from sin and eternal death through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That's got to be absolutely central to what a church is. And I think you guys know that. I don't think that it would, I would have any thought that you would go elsewhere and, uh, and be happy for you know, something other than that uh, coming from the, the ministry and the pulpit of the church. Uh, sacrament, you know, we Protestants say two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, Westminster Confession is robust on this, the, the 27th chapter. You know, the grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them, nor does the efficacy of the sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that does administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the words of institution, which contain together with a proper authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. So, you know, we always understand the sacrament to be the word on display. You know, so there are words that are used that come right from the Bible uh, that, that ground the sacrament. And uh, the extension of the sacrament, uh, the, the baptizing of people into membership in the church and the, the feeding of the flock, you know, with the bread and the cup um, on a regular basis, you know, are, the, are, are what marks the church. So it is interesting. I mean, I've challenged InterVarsity staff workers lately, and maybe, you know, maybe I ought to be more careful about this, but I, but I, I have asked, you know, if, if you understand that you do not have the right to the sacrament, uh, why do you think you have the right to the word? You know, uh, how, how, how do you understand that? Now, again, I was on InterVarsity staff, and, uh, and part of the way that our region functioned was that my calendar would fill up with weekly invitations all over the state of North Carolina uh, to go and address various InterVarsity groups. It was interesting that we never called them sermons. You know, we always called them talks. And, they, and, and actually, the InterVarsity staff workers got short shrift in that. And, and in fact, we distinguished ourselves from Campus Crusade at that time, and fairly or not, you know, but, but the students, you know, would select the speakers, and they would always favor pastors to InterVarsity staff. Yeah, at Wake Forest, where I was, they would give me, you know, the honor of speaking at the first chapter meeting. Uh, but the rest of the chapter meetings, there might be one other InterVarsity staff worker around for every three uh, pastors. And those could either be local pastors or they could be pastors of the uh, churches from which the kids came, you know, if they could, if they could drive there. Um, but anyway, marks of the church are word and sacrament. There is a third mark, um, uh, discipline, uh, and, and, it's, and it's pretty critical. You know, it, it, and it fits in with word and sacrament. In fact, you know, some folks would say Calvin understood discipline as a subset of sacrament. Uh, so baptismal candidates are interviewed by the elders as to the veracity of their faith, and communi communion attendees likewise uh, should examine themselves uh, as to the same. You know, the old... Uh, what do you need to? What happened? Okay, thank you. Um, 
you know, the old Scottish communion practices, you know, that, you know, out of which we kind of flow were such that the congregation were interviewed uh, before every Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper was only twice a year or maybe even once a year. Uh, but the elders would go around and interview the congregation members and say, are you, are you walking in the light? You know, are you, um, are you living out the faith? You know, what's your life look like? That's, that's an intriguing practice. It's hard to do it weekly, you know, one of the downsides of weekly communion. Um, uh, nonetheless, you know, there is going on at the Lord's Supper a kind of discipline. You know, are you of the faith or are you not of the faith? Um, And then membership flows from that. And this is actually a quote from Keller. Uh, Those who say that church membership is not necessary or even that it is is, is unbiblical uh, fail to group what the New Testament teaches, fail to grasp what the New Testament teaches about the church and the administration of the sacraments. Jesus accompanied his promise to build the church with his gift of the keys of the kingdom. those who do not heed the final discipline of the church would be regarded as Gentiles and publicans, that is, as outside the membership of the community. Now, this is a hard one to swallow. You know, I know there are people here at CTK who steadfastly refuse to join the church. And, uh, you know, I don't make a huge deal out of it. I don't tell them, don't come to the church anymore. You're, you're not allowed to. I do tell them you, you misunderstand what's going on when you come to the Lord's Supper. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, change takes place, sometimes not. There was a funny uh, episode where, you know, a young woman was steadfastly opposed to church membership. She was raised with that, that conviction uh, in, in her, the church of her youth. And, uh, and she said, well, I'm not coming to communion if that's, if that's the way you feel about it. And so, you know, we elders gave her a special dispensation to come to communion, even though she wasn't a member of the church. And, uh, and that worked out well, because when she graduated and went and got her faculty position elsewhere, she promptly joined a PCA church, you know, and uh, had overcome that scruple. Um, but yeah, and then discipline, of course, flows into, you know, the notion of if you disappear or if you misbehave, and I, that's probably the wrong way to put it, but, you know, if you... Uh, find yourself at odds with the Word of God and the way that you're living your life, you know, the elders of the church take responsibility for that and want to uh, pursue that, and, and, uh, and it can lead to negative forms of church discipline. Positive form of church discipline is just uh, preaching the Word, you know, and, uh, and calling people to faith and repentance. You know, the negative forms would be admonition and censure and, and possibly even excommunication. Uh, and those are central to the life of the church. Those are important. Although, man, it makes us nervous to think about, doesn't it? it makes it hard. Um, so any questions on these things? Okay. One holy Catholic and apostolic. Three marks. Word, sacrament, and discipline. You got it? Okay, so that answers the question of what is the church. So the first consideration as you're considering another church as you move on is, you know, how are these things in play, you know, in the life of the church? Um, Secondly, um, as a category, and I'm not ranking this importance, I would say theology is important. Uh, I've got this long quote by Piper that I'm not going to fumble up and try to read. Uh, You know, but, you know, he is saying, you know, that he, uh, and this this was written quite some time ago, that, that he is chagrined by the degree to which the entertainment industry has in 
inform the life of the church in the way that you can really build a mock-up of a church, you know, something that looks like a church on the outside and not really be a church. Um, uh, as long as the crowds are large, the band is loud, and the tragedies are few, and persecution is at the level of preferences. But with that, you know, when any of those other things kind of invade, you know, you've you got to have a theological ground uh, that you're standing on. Um, you know, the basics of Orthodox Protestant theology are a, a high view of the authority of the Bible, uh, that the Bible trumps reason and experience. Uh, it is relevant in the area of sexuality, also in gender and church office. And, you know, um, you know what I'm getting at there. I mean, you know, there are churches that, have, that are now saying, hey, we want to be both evangelical and open and affirming, you know, to homosexual practice. And, and uh, that's deeply problematic, you know, and it's, and it's not problematic on the side of morality. It's problematic on the side of the authority of the Bible. Uh, and, and hermeneutic. Um, you know, the gender and church office question is a, is a, is a really tricky one. Um, uh, but in some ways, you know, this kind of opened the door for the questions on sexuality because it was kind of um, not really an issue until, you know, maybe the early 70s, I think, when Gordon Fee uh, from Gordon-Conwell published a book on, on Bible interpretation on hermeneutics, and he allowed, you know, that the... Um, that the, the statements in 1 Timothy 2 about gender and church office could be um, uh, compartmentalized or made uh, irrelevant by virtue of culture, uh, that, you know, that they uh, had no cultural application, you know, to the current scene. And, you know, it's a big question, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't get mad when I find out that, that a woman has gotten ordained. In fact, one of those Anglican ministers, you know, that I just described to you, Anglican priest for whom I did mentored ministry uh, is a woman and uh, and we have a good friendship in fact she came and with her husband spoke at a at a uh, at a at a CTK getaway you know so to me it's not a an issue over which we break fellowship or over which we you know consider ourselves to be substantially at odds but it does become a question of how you handle the Bible and uh, so high view of the authority of the Bible the necessity of conversion you know we really think that people need to be converted um, that, that people don't just kind of waltz their way into the church, you know, without, you know, a, a reckoning, without a repentance, you know, of sin, without uh, a demonstration of faith. Now, of course, you know, children who grow up in the faith and say, look, I can never really remember when I wasn't a part of the faith, are, that's fine. Uh, but, but still, you know, we look, at a, we look to a point, and we have historically looked to a point where a child says, this is my faith, it's not my parents' faith. This is my faith. And we ask the parents to, to observe in their kids an honest um, conviction of sin. You know, a place where they're not feeling bad about being caught, you know, but they're feeling bad that they've offended God uh, in their misbehavior, in their sin. Um, so the ne necessity of conversion is a big one. Um, salvation through faith in Christ's work on the cross, not in good works. Uh, missions taking the message to the world. You could also just say evangelism uh, and accepting of the supernatural uh, elements of the Bible. Uh, can you think of any others? So anyway, you know, in my mind, you know, a, a, a diminution of or, or a, the absence of any of these things or uh, of their like, you know, would would uh, would mitigate against. Um, or at least would you know be something against you know being a part of a church that had 
abandoned those things, moved away from them. Um, you know, second tier theology would be uh, charismatic or cessationist, you know, whether speaking in tongues happens or is prohibited. Uh, it's not as much as a big deal anymore, I don't think, is it? Does anybody know? It used to be a big deal. Uh, you know, now I, I don't hear of it very much. Um, you know, it depends a little on degree uh, on both sides. You know, um, you know, that's to say, must you speak in tongues or must you make sure you never do? You know, that's, those are the extreme sides of that discussion. Um, Paedo-Baptist or Credo-Baptist or both. You know, there are some churches that try to do both. But, you know, that's kind of a big deal. And, and I would say that, um, you know, if you're young, you know, it, it's somewhat important that you line yourself up with this. You know, if, simply for the matter of uh, when the time comes and, and, and you marry and you have kids, uh, are you going to be at odds with the church? Or uh, also, are you positioned to accept leadership in the church? You know, and, and, you know, especially if the church requires a certain doctrinal conformity. You know, so, um, you know, there's a guy who's been walking through here as a deacon that I wrestled with for a couple of years after kids were born, you know, saying, hey, you know, what do you think about baptizing your kids? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. You know, and, and, it, and, and the, the rub was that, that he was being nominated to serve, you know, as an officer in the church. And, and he couldn't have done that if he was still ambivalent you know, on this issue, you know, so at a certain point he came and said, look, I'm ready really to wrestle with this. I'm ready to read the book, ready to meet weekly. You know, let's get this thing ironed out. Um, um, Calvinist or Arminian, again, it's a, it's a big divide, but um, it also is something in which there's considerable overlap that uh, people don't often appreciate. You know, Keller being Presbyterian says that election, um, uh, has a lot of difficulties, but it is, is probably pretty important as we understand that salvation is God's work and not ours. Um, third tier would be church government. Is it connectional or not? Uh, do you have bishops or not? That's the big difference between us and the Anglicans. They have bishops and we don't. Um, how many elders? Um, that's kind of the difference between us and the and the at least the Southern Baptists used to be this way, you know, although it's kind of interesting, there's a new breed of Southern Baptist who uh, marks uh, himself or herself by a conviction about the plurality of elders. That's kind of code speak, you know, for they have moved into a more reformed, you know, kind of uh, posture. Um, but, you know, we Presbyterians have plurality of elders, you know, rather than um, uh, just one elder being the pastor. Okay, any questions about that? And this is the, the sad part of my teaching, is it doesn't elicit questions. Um, so, you know, do you have convictions about the theology of a given church? Uh, where are those convictions ranked? And, uh, and, and it's very curious to me to figure out the migration from conservative Protestant to Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox, and this usually by intelligent people. You know, when I was... When I got converted, there were masses of us kids raised Roman Catholic who became evangelical, you know. And for us, it was it was simply a matter of the Bible got opened up, you know. And so when I started taking a look at the Bible, you know, my life got turned upside down, you know. When I heard that I could uh, be a Christian by faith, you know, rather than by, 
you know, all these energetic works, you know, that were being given to me by the Church of Rome. Um, I, you know, I, I entered a new world and was very happy about it. And there were a lot of us doing that. You know, now, you know, for instance, I had a guy come by my office. This a couple of years ago. Faculty member out at UMass Amherst and a good buddy. He was part of a Baptist church out there and <clears throat> was trying to help us as we were thinking about planting a church. And he said, well, I need to tell you, I've gone over to the dark side, you know, with a smile on his face. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, I've joined the Roman Catholic Church. I said, what? You know, that, that shocks me. He said, yeah, yeah, it just happened, you know. And I, and I was joking with him. I mean, we were kind of teasing. And I said, you know, I'd, I'd give it a thought if they'd stop saying I'm going to hell. And he said, wow, what do you mean by that? And I said, you know, Counselor Trent. You know, it's pretty clear, you know, those who believe that justification is by faith alone, apart from works, are anathema. And he said, well, I don't believe that. And I said, this is something I'm finding, people joining the Catholic Church without believing what it says. You know, but what's the draw? You know, and I, and I think in a lot of ways, it's, the draw is aesthetics. You know, many, many of my friends in, in Nashville have gone Anglican. And the draw very clearly to them is, is, uh, is aesthetics. They want the aesthetics. I, I met a guy one time... Uh, actually, this guy's name's Al McDonald. I don't, he's, he's the guy who gave all the money for the McDonald Chair of Evangelical Theology at Harvard Divinity School. There's four or five other McDonald Chairs around. And he said that he had gravitated toward the Episcopal Church because he got tired of listening to sermons. <laughs> you know, and in some way, I can resonate with that. You know, uh, you know sermons can be kind of lousy, you know, and can be more, you know, the pastor's axe to grind than they can be faithful exposition of the word. Um, but, you know, that, that's that. I don't want to go any further. Um, so aesthetics, um, you know, what I want to say is that, you know, there's several, you know, uh, music worship styles, different physical spaces. Frequency of communion is a, I think it's an aesthetic concern. It's not a theological concern. Um, uh, evangelistic worship um, uh, for unbelievers. There's a room for uh, unbelievers, uh, ethnic makeup of the congregation, economic diversity, you know, what's the rationale, uh, theological convictions, uh, cultural setting, you know, your own temperament and affinity. The upshot of all this, and we're out of time, is simply that I think aesthetics are important. I, I don't think that they're the most important. You know, I, I think that they can legitimately figure into how you think about a church and how you decide what church to be a part of, but they can't be the dominant feature. You know, you can't go for the aesthetics if you feel like the theology is flawed. Um, and then the mission of the church, you know, why does the church exist? Um, you know, the idea of a missional church has got a lot of misconceptions, and I suggest that better the idea of a missional people, you know, rather than a missional church, you know, if the missional church is defined by its cultural impact. Um, uh, need to be clear about the nature of the kingdom. I mean, this is a much longer conversation. Uh, need to be wise regarding differing convictions regarding cultural engagement. And I was going to ask Nate if we're going to do that later this summer. I think we are. We usually have a class on cultural engagement uh, during this Hot Topics season. And uh, Keller's got a very helpful chapter on that in his book, Center Church. Um, you know, the, uh, again, the mission of the church is defined by Jesus. Uh, the mission of the church has to do with evangelism and discipleship. Um, and, and, I, and I don't think that we want to substitute uh, anything else for that. And, and that, that's pretty important. And, I, and I've seen churches that have done that where they've, you know, evangelism is just too hard. You know, I know one church that said, you know, um, 
Christianity Explored, for instance, is just too confrontative. You know, so we need to have a different way of engaging. Well, Christianity Explored, as far as I'm concerned, is just what the Bible says to people. You know, all it is is the study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, uh, location is a delicate question. Um, CTK is committed to neighborhood churches um, rather than regional. Um, but there are reasons for that. Uh, we don't feel like this is the right way or the only way of doing it. What we discovered in our, in our growth here is that Boston itself tends to be a parochial community. It's an overlay of the parish mentality of, of, of the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, and we felt like, you know, initially we had people that moved to Dorchester. They would invite friends to come to church with them. And all of their Dorchester friends would say, why would we go to church in Cambridge? It's crazy. You know, don't do that. So that's why we, you know, um, have built this network of neighborhood churches. Uh, but again, it, it doesn't always work. It never works precisely. Um, there's always some overlap, you know, going on. Um, are there other categories? No, the upshot. Um, careful consideration. Uh, I would be biased toward theological convictions. Frames ethical perspectives are what's the norm, what's the situation, and what's the motivation. Um, that's worth a whole other class, but we're not going to do it. Um, that's it. That's all I got. Um, if you have, I'm glad to engage you on this uh, at any later date. So let me know if you want to talk more about it. And let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for your goodness to us. Thanks for the beauty of the church. Uh, thank you that, uh, that, that Jesus established the church, that he built it on Peter's profession, that that was the rock upon which he built the church, and that his promise sustains us. Uh, we are so grateful for that promise, and now we want to uh, take advantage of what it is that you've given us and uh, put ourselves under your authority, under your wing, uh, under your word. And we ask that we can do that even as we worship next hour. In Jesus' name, amen.